All right, if you would, open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. We'll be in verses 1 through 8 tonight as we continue our series uh, going through seeing Jesus in all of Scripture. And uh, as you turn there, uh, there's often been a quote, like many quotes from Martin Luther, but there's often been a quote from Martin Luther uh, that has really come back to my mind over and over and over. And it's when he says this, he says, your thoughts of God are too human. In other words, you think about God too much strictly like you think about another man or another woman. But God is wholly different. He's in a totally other playing field, a a totally different category from us. And Isaiah 6 is one of those texts where we begin to see something of how glorious and how holy He is, or truly how other He is. Isaiah chapter 6 will be in verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me me. This is the word of the Lord. God's people said, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word yet again, for your word reveals the holiness that you possess and that you have always possessed for all eternity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we look to you as the Holy One, the Holy Trinity. And would you help us tonight? to understand what that means. To understand what Your Word is saying and that You would give us a sense, something of a sense of Your holiness. And that we would see truly how big You are, how big Your Gospel is. And as You show that to us, would You change us so that we might not leave here the same way we walked in. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. R.C. Sproul once said that uh, all of us at some level struggle with xenophobia. What is xenophobia? Xenophobia is the fear of someone who is different from you. 
But when R.C. Sproul said that we struggle, we all struggle with xenophobia, he's not primarily thinking about another person like human being who's other than us. But another being who's different from us. He's talking about how we all suffer from xenophobia because God is so different from us. Yes, we're made in the image of God. Nevertheless, God is still vastly different. He's in a whole different category. He is far bigger than anything we've ever even imagined. And as one theologian says, that merely even using words to describe him falls short of what he really is. One of my professors at Gordon-Conwell once said this, God is not here to conform to us. We must conform to him. We are summoned to know him only on his terms. He is not on our terms. We are here to know him as he is, not as we want him to be. The local church is the place where we should be learning about this God and God's word is the means by which we can do so. In other words, what we try to do in RUF is that we try to not think about God as being too human. We try to overcome and repent of our, as it were, xenophobia so that we might approach him and take him on his terms. And if you want to create a God in your own image, you won't find the God of the Bible. But God has called us by his word to take him as he is. And if you take him as he is, then you will realize truly there is no one like him. There is no one like him. You see, in this text here, Isaiah is a prophet who is going to minister to the people of Judah, which would be the southern tribes of the people of Israel after they had split into Israel being in the north and Judah in the south. And before God is going to send Isaiah out into his ministry so that Isaiah can proclaim that God's people must conform to God rather than God's people trying to conform God to them, before he can go and do that, God needs to show Isaiah who he really is. And he's going to show him one of the most magnificent pictures of who he is in all of Scripture. No one is like our holy God. Look at verses 1 through 4. We see the vision of the Holy One. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. You see, when President Roosevelt died in uh, 1945, it was in the middle of World War II. And you had the superpowers of Japan and Germany threatening the world. And at that point, President Roosevelt had done a very good job of helping to, to beat back the evil powers there that were happening at that time. But then he died. Then the question came, well, what's going to happen now? And it's actually during that period of time when Harry Truman was uh, installed, as it were, as the next president. And in that uncertainty, one author who wrote the biography of Harry Truman 
after the Germans heard about President Roosevelt dying, here's what he said. He said, an ecstatic Joseph Gables, if I'm saying that name right, Joseph Gables was a Nazi propaganda minister. He telephoned Hitler personally to proclaim that it was a turning point written in the stars. How wrong could he have been? You see, but for the time of America during 1945, when when Roosevelt had died, it was a time of uncertainty, of thinking maybe this is going to change things with this war. You see, when King Uzziah died, there's the superpower lurking to the east in Assyria. And we used to call this guy in seminary, his name was Tiglath Pileser III. In seminary, we used to call him TP3. Sounded much cooler that way. TP3 is one of the most powerful rulers ever in the history of the earth. And he is controlling Assyria and he's lurking. And King Uzziah has died. And surely the people of Judah are beginning to say, is this finally it? That's where we're in in this context. It was 740 B.C. And in 2 Chronicles 26, we read about how Uzziah died because Uzziah walked into God's temple and he tried to do what only God's priests were called to do. And whenever he refused to not obey the priest when they told him to leave the temple, he got angry and God struck him with leprosy. Leprosy was highly contagious back then. And so what that meant for him is that for the rest of his life, he could not go back into the temple. He was cut off from the presence of God. In other words, it was God's judgment. So when King Uzziah dies... It was a sign to all of Judah to say that God's judgment was at hand. And it would have made them think this. Is God now going to wipe us out? Certainly Isaiah goes to the temple to seek the Lord's help and the Lord's mercy. And you have to ask the question this. What is the temple? The temple is where God dwells. It is the intersection, as it were, of heaven and earth. And so Isaiah goes to the temple and look at verse 1 where it says, I saw the Lord. Now, interestingly there, the Lord, is it all caps or is it not all caps? It's not all caps. It's the Hebrew word for Adonai. It's as if uh, when Isaiah is describing God, it's as if he's saying this, I saw the one who governs all creation. I saw the king who rules over every known and unknown kingdom. I saw the master who has everyone and everything under his sovereignty. I saw the majesty of the one whom no one can match. That's what it means for God to be Adonai. It means the king of kings. It means the Lord of lords. And what is he doing? He's sitting upon a throne When it says that he's sitting upon a throne, it means that it's permanent, which is so interesting. Because one king has just died, but the true king has never moved from his throne. He's alive. And as he's seated on the throne, the throne certainly represents that this God has sovereignty over all all people, all nations, including someone like TP3 who's lurking. You see, it's a picture of a God who is truly high and lifted up. Literally, there could be no one higher than this God. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 
One pastor named Cotton Mather said this, the great design and intention of the office of the Christian preacher is to restore the throne and dominion of God in the souls of people. And that is what preaching aims for all the time, is that you would know that God reigns. And here's one thing that's really cool. If you're a Christian, you have Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit, and now you are God's temple. And so that means God is sovereign over you. God's the king. It says his robe, look at it. The train of his robe filled the temple. The temple was an amazing thing because the temple was actually modeled after uh, the, the earth and the heavens and the heaven of heavens, as it were. And actually, as you would walk in the temple, remember, you would see lampstands. Those lampstands would remind you of the lights of the heavens, in other words, the stars. So when Isaiah sees that the train of his robe fills the entire temple, what that is saying overwhelmingly is that there is not a single place in all of creation where God is not king. You don't make God king. He is king. And then something interesting happens. Look at verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. Literally, seraphim means the burning ones. Actually, one of my seminary professors told us that this would be some sort of picture of fiery flying serpents. And back in that day, serpents would be a symbolism for kingship. So literally everything in this picture of God is that he is king and no one matches him. And these burning ones are representing God's overpowering greatness. And you see here that they have six wings. Two, they cover their face. Two, they cover their feet. And with two, they, they flew. Why do they cover their face? Think about this. These angels have no sin. They are holy. But even they do not have the audacity to look at God. What this is showing us is that what, what another one of my seminary professors used to say so often is that there is a creator-creature distinction. God is not on your level. He is holy other. He is so far and above us that no matter how holy a, cre- a creature of any kind might be, it is most smart to cover your face because He's that holy. Even the angels, the burning ones, cover their face. They cover their feet. And certainly the covering of the face and the covering of the feet reminds you of when Moses saw the presence of the Lord in the burning bush in Exodus 3. And he covered his face and God told him to remove the sandals from his feet. They cover their feet. And here's what that means. It means that they would not dare to walk their own path of life, but they will be certain to walk down God's path of life. See, actually, this picture is showing us that if we had any ounce of knowledge of who God really is, we would not dare to reject him. We wouldn't dare mock him. They have two other wings and they're flying. It's almost like a hummingbird that is, that is hovering in spot, ready to dash back and forth immediately at God's word. 
They're ready to answer at his bidding without any conversation, without any argument, without any debate. What he says goes. That's how holy this king is. And they begin to call out to each other. Look at verse 3. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. What does it mean when it says holy three times consecutively? Well, if you remember back in Genesis 3 when we went through that, when, when Mike Biggs came here to preach, and one of the things that happens in the Hebrew language is that when it wants to put emphasis on something, it will repeat that Hebrew word twice. So in Genesis 3, when God says, don't eat of the, tr- of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest you die, in the Hebrew, it literally says, you will die, die. That's how we get our English translation for you will surely die. So it means like in other, in other portions of uh, the Old Testament, there's one point in the Hebrew where it says pit, pit. In other words, a pit that is like really, really deep. So when it says God is holy, it doesn't just say that he's holy, and it doesn't just say that he's holy, holy. It says that he is holy, 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 and it is the only place in all of Scripture where something three times is described of God. In other words, this. It is the essence of who he is. And everything that describes God must be holy, whatever other adjective follows. God is holy. But what does the word holy mean? It means to be utterly devoted to God. I want you to see this. It has many other definitions that I'm going to get to in a second. But it first means to be utterly devoted to God. In other words, God is first and foremost about God. Think about this. What is the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. Can God break any of his commandments? No. So that means that God cannot treat anyone or anything more important than himself. Because he is God. That's one of the key things that you need to know about the Bible and about true Christianity and about true proclamation of the gospel. Is that it is first and foremost about God before it's about us. The first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, what is the chief end of man? And the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And we could very well say this, what is the chief end of God? The chief end of God is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. He is utterly devoted to Himself. Holiness means that He is perfect in purity. He is matchless in majesty. He is spotless in splendor. And as Jonathan Edwards would say, that holiness means infinite beauty. It literally means, holy means, this person is utterly worthy of our worship. And God is holy, holy, holy. Everyone in here is meant to worship him. Sinclair Ferguson says this, Holiness is the intensity of the love that flows within the very being of God, among and between each of the three persons of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Another pastor from Georgia, Terry Johnson, says this, God's holiness is his purity and perfection, his love of righteousness and truth, his abhorrence of sin, 
his rewarding of the good, his wrath and anger against evil, his demand for repentance, and his insistence upon the purified lives of his people. Of all the ways that God is described in the Old Testament, and you combine all of them except for holiness, you combine every other way God is described besides holiness in the Old Testament, and that does not match the number of times that God is described as holy. That's how much we're talking about how holy God is. God's holiness is like when a surgeon would grab a scalpel to do surgery, and if there is any sort of defect on that scalpel, no matter how small or how big, a smart surgeon will throw away that scalpel to get a pure, spotless scalpel so that it can be used for a successful surgery. You see... It doesn't matter how small the defect is or how big the defect is. It is, as it were, unholy. God has no defect in Him. God is so holy that, as John says in 1 John, that darkness cannot even dwell in His presence because God is light. David Wells from Gordon-Conwell says this, The modern church wants therapy, not redemption. To be happy, not holy. To feel good, not to be good. To avoid pain, not sin. If you think that Christianity is first and foremost about your happiness, then you don't have a proper view of God. Now actually, when you embrace God as the Holy One, it'll end up for your happiness. But if you're living life just to make sure that you are comfortable then you have not seen the God of the Bible because he will make you uncomfortable. Common saying is this, comfort those who are afflicted and afflict those who are comfortable. That's what the Bible does. It says that the whole earth is full of his glory. In other words, there's not a square inch in all creation where God's glory is not seen. And if you don't see it, It's because you don't have eyes to see it. God's glory is His holiness revealed. And what the seraphim are saying is that there's not a single place in all creation where God is not glorious. That's why Jesus tells us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven. Notice that He doesn't just say Father, but He mentions Him in heaven, the holiness of God. Our Father who art in heaven, what? Hallowed be Thy name. What does that mean? To hallow something means to make holy. So Jesus is telling us that the prayer that we are to pray every single day is that all of creation would see how holy God really is. Here's the question. How often do we live in light of God's holiness? Everything in life should orbit around God's holiness. All friendships, all views of marriage, your dating philosophy, your views of sexuality and sex, mental health, counseling, ethics, creation, your schoolwork, ministry itself should all orbit around God's holiness. That's what God's Word is saying. Nothing in our life should be left out. There used to be a Latin phrase that was called quorum Deo, meaning to live all of life before the face of God. That's what this is saying. And when the seraphim proclaimed this, now notice this, 
at verse 4. The, the thresholds don't shake because God says this. This is merely from the seraphim. And if the seraphim are just such big, massive, powerful beings that merely at their praises of God that the temple shakes, how much greater is God? The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. Certainly this is a reminder of Exodus 19 when God is giving his Ten Commandments, his covenant to Moses at Mount Sinai. The mountain quakes and it starts smoking. You see, there is a massive connection between God's holiness and God's holy word. Satan in the very beginning in the garden said, look, did God really say this? And then he also later on tempted them with saying, you will be God if you obey me. Notice the connection there. Rejecting God's word is rejecting God and installing yourself as God. You either take God at his word or you're rejecting him and and saying, I will be God. There's no room in Christianity for the Thomas Jefferson Bible where you cut out some portions that make you feel uncomfortable. We take him at his terms. But there's a question here because what does it mean that that Isaiah saw the Lord? That's actually something you should ask. Because Jesus himself says in John 4.24 that God is spirit. In other words, God doesn't have a a physical body in his being. So what in the world does it mean that Isaiah saw the Lord? You can't see spiritual things. And we get the key in John 12, 41, where John himself says that what Isaiah saw is the glory of Christ before he was born of the Virgin Mary. This is the glory of Jesus Christ. He is the thrice holy one. You see, seeing the God of the Old Testament is seeing the Jesus to come. And when you realize this, you will realize that there is no one like our holy God. That's the vision of the Holy One. But what about the response of the sinful one? Look at verses 5 through 8. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, Isaiah, his first reaction is to call a curse down upon himself. Notice that, with all due respect, if I can say this, notice that Isaiah is not closing his eyes, feeling really good, getting in the feels at the presence of God. He wants to immediately call down a curse upon himself. He would have known the story of Moses when Moses asked to see the glory of God in Exodus 33 verse 20 where God tells him, you cannot see my face and live. Isaiah feels like he's about to die. That's his first reaction. His first reaction is, "Uh uh-oh. Or as one of my seminary professors used to say, when it says, whoa, you should say, whoa. Isaiah thought he was a dead man. Because in the face of God's holiness, Isaiah knows he is lost. He knows that he has sinned. What is sin? 
Thomas Watson, the Puritan, says this, No wonder that God hates sin because sin is so unlike God. Nay, so contrary to God. Sin strikes at His holiness. It does all it can to spite God. If sin could help it, God should no longer be God. What is sin? Sin is the rejection of God and the rejection of His Word and living contrary to Him. And when, when Isaiah sees the Lord... He doesn't just see the Lord, but in the face of the Lord, he sees his sin. You see, this should be a, a very good reminder, as Paul Tripp says, the holiness of God provides the only reliable means of knowing ourselves. There's a lot of personality tests in the world, and you can get a lot of great things from those things, but you will not see the holiness of God there. And if you don't see the holiness of God, you will never know your true self. You see, we are a sinful people and we need to be reminded that we're not going to be judged in light of our comparison with other people. We're not going to be judged in light of our, you know, how good our intentions were or how good our efforts were. We will be judged in light of who God is. That's the standard. We were made in the image of God, meant to image God and that's how we will be judged is how well we imaged him Isaiah calls a curse upon himself and as R.C. Sproul says it's just so interesting is that Isaiah was considered by his contemporaries as the most righteous man in the nation think about that if someone in that nation could have boasted in the presence of God it would have been Isaiah but the first thing he does is he pronounces a curse upon himself. See, that's one of the things we need to be reminded in our present day and age is that self-esteem does nothing if there is no God esteem. And you can have the most self-esteem in the world, but in the presence of God, it means nothing if you do not have Jesus Christ. When he says, I am lost, woe is me, I am lost, it literally means I am silenced. Now, what stage in life are you completely silenced? You're silenced in death. So Isaiah feels like it, it's, it's doomsday. It's that then moment. You see, to take a quick sidebar, we need to think about this. What must Jesus have thought when he read this portion? Because Jesus would have known that as he was going to go to the cross, he would be made to be sin. And God's holiness would face him. And think about the curses that Jesus would experience on the cross for millions upon millions of Isaiahs. Where does Isaiah curse himself? What part of his body? He says, for I am a man of what? Unclean lips. Now, what does a prophet do? Speaks. The thing in the organ that the prophet uses most is the mouth. And oftentimes when God gives us gifts, they're great, but we can take good gifts and we can put pride in those things. And isn't it so true that for whatever gifts you have, all of a sudden that can become your idol. That can become what you worship rather than God. So what this is saying is this. What do you feel like is the best part about yourself? 
What is the thing that as you look around the room, as you walked into here tonight, in this room tonight, that you thought, this is what I can have confidence in compared to everyone else? What is the thing that you think makes you enough? That's the part that that Isaiah sees and he realizes it is nothing. Or as it'll say later, our best deeds are filthy rags. There's no room for boasting in God's presence. Matter of fact, Isaiah calls his lips not simply sinful but unclean, meaning he he deserves to be like King Uzziah and excluded from the presence of God. And that's a good reminder of what the gospel is. Because God does not save good people. Romans 5 said that God sent his son when we were weak, not strong. When we were sinful, not righteous. When we were ungodly, not when we were holy. When we were enemies, not when we were his friends. No matter how good you think you are, you have no clue who God is and his holiness. And if something... For all those of us in here who struggle with self-righteousness, this should expose your heart. You see, the gospel tells us not merely to repent of our bad deeds, it tells us to repent of our good deeds. The things that you're tempted to be prideful about when you compare and contrast yourself with other people in this room, that's where you're sinful. But look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me. I remember hearing a pastor say, this is probably Isaiah's thinking it's all doom and gloom now. One of the burning, fiery uh, serpents is flying to him. Isaiah would have thought this is it. But what does he have in his hand? Look at it. Having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs from the altar. In other words, the seraphim is coming from the altar. Ask the question, what is the altar there for? Think about the temple. The altar was there for sacrifices. It was there so that sinners could have a sacrifice in their place so that they could meet with God in peace. The altar was where atonement was made. It was where something took a sinner's place so that a sinner could receive the blessing. And the coal from the altar is representing the fact that atonement has been made for Isaiah. You see, sacrifices were made to cover the sins of God's people and to actually satisfy God. So in a very real way, we need to think that it is enough in God's eyes. And because it's enough in God's eyes, it should be enough for us. Even look at this. Notice that the seraphim, remember the burning ones have to use tongs. Why would you need to use tongs if you're already on fire? Maybe because of this. Because the sacrifice is so holy as well. And they would not dare desecrate it. God does not leave Isaiah merely feeling sorry for his sin. Do you see that? He does not just say, now let's camp out here for about three more months. And then when you feel really good about feeling really bad, then you can come to me. That's not what he does. He doesn't leave Isaiah just feeling sorry for his sin, but rather God meets him. God goes towards him. And now notice, look at verse 7. And he touched my what? Mouth. Isn't this amazing? The part 
of his, of his body, as it were, or, or his resume, where he felt most unclean before the presence of the Lord, that's where God met him. Where do you feel most unclean? Where do you feel most of your guilt? In that one act or in that struggle that you still have going on right now, where is it that you feel most unclean? That's where God meets you with the sacrifice. He touches his mouth. And it says, the angel says, uh, the seraphim says, look, your guilt is taken away. Literally, another translation says, your crime is gone. In other words, Isaiah's not going to die. But rather, he has been forgiven. Now, we need to think back to God's holiness. This is really important. Because I said earlier that because for God to be holy, it means everything that we use to describe God should be holy and then blank. So it's literally this. It's his holy forgiveness. In other words, it's pure, perfect, satisfactory forgiveness that God has given to Isaiah. God gives Isaiah a holy forgiveness. It's infinitely beautiful in the eyes of God to forgive Isaiah. It's utterly good. It's totally satisfactory for God. And here's the question, dear Christian, and only for the Christian. You have forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Is that enough for you? Because it's enough for God. We say often today, I can't forgive myself. But Mark 2 says, only God can forgive sins. You don't have the right to forgive yourself. And if you think that God's forgiveness for you is not enough, you're actually calling God a liar and you're saying, I have better holy standards than God does. This is amazing assurance of salvation right here because you cannot think too highly of God's forgiveness for your sins. Amen? If you have Jesus Christ, you have a Holy, holy, holy forgiveness. Jason Meyer in his biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones says, It is not humble but audacious to suggest that the God who promises forgiveness may in fact somehow be a liar. You see, we need to learn to repent of our doubts that God has actually forgiven us. That when we go to worship and we confess our sins and there's the assurance of pardon given, that is a real word for real sinners right there. And if you come to Jesus Christ, that is your reality. Your emotions are not always defining accurately your reality. God's word does. Sin is atoned for. That's what it says next. Your guilt is taken away and your sin Atoned for, meaning your sin has been covered from God's sight. Think about the Ark of the Covenant. In the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, inside the Ark, do you remember what's there? At least one of the things that are there? The Ten Commandments. And in the Ten Commandments, that judges us, that reveals who God is and shows us our sin. There is a covering over the Ten Commandments, and that's where the blood of the Lamb would be sprinkled over top. You see, your sins are covered from God's sight because of a sacrifice. That's what God is telling Isaiah. In other words, you're no longer going to be accused in light of the law. And as Horatius Bonner says, God pointing to the altar says, that is enough for me. And the sinner should respond saying, it is enough for me. 
You see, this is actually what Jesus came to fulfill. Jesus is the one who all the Old Testament sacrifices, they were leading up to him. Because on the cross, Jesus, who was made to be sin, even though he knew no sin, he was perfect, he was spotless, he is the holy, holy, holy one. But on the cross, sin was transferred to him. And he faced the holiness of God, and God treated him like he deserved all the curses for God's elect. And now because of that, you need to ask the question, if Jesus takes our sin, what do we get in return? We get his holy, holy, holy righteousness. That's what you get. You have no idea what clothes you right now, dear Christian. You have no idea. Jesus is the one who's enough. And for those of us who can be struggling with that spiritual anxiety and that that deep crippling shame and that despair over our sin or the hounding guilt, we need to be reminded that Jesus' righteousness is enough for God. Amen? Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Here's why the psalmist says that. is because you can measure north pole to south pole, can't you? But you travel around the globe, and no matter how many times you circle the globe, east is always in front of you, west is always behind you. You cannot measure it. You need to think higher about God's forgiveness for you. Don't limit God's holiness, but think higher about Christ's righteousness for you. That means we need to learn to stop only examining our sin or only examining our performance and how well we're doing in the Christian life. That's where Satan wants to keep you. He wants to keep you only thinking about yourself, only thinking about your sin, only thinking about your performance. And the gospel tells you to stop looking within and look without. And look at Jesus. To examine Christ more. Yes, we consider our sins. Absolutely, as Isaiah did. But we move to the cross. Again, Horatius Bonner says, With a weak faith and a fearful heart, many a sinner stands before the altar, but it is not the strength of their faith, but the perfection of the sacrifice that saves them. Your faith is weak, but your faith does not make the sacrifice sufficient for you. The sacrifice is sufficient for you. That's what grows your faith. Amen? It also compels us to walk because we've been saved, to walk in holiness. As St. Augustine said, God became man so that man might become like God. 1 Peter 1.16, Peter's quoting Leviticus 11.44, and Peter says, Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The Christian is it's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be perfect. But you learn more and more by God's grace, by the strength of the Holy Spirit, by focusing on Christ, you learn more and more to live a holy life, a life devoted to God. Sinclair Ferguson again says, this is why you need to go get that book, Maturity, it's so good. He says this, if being devoted to God is what holiness means within God, then in us it must also be a corresponding Deeply personal, intense, loving devotion to God. A belonging to Him that is irreversible, unconditional, without any reserve on our part. That's what the Christian learns to do more and more. Again, Paul Tripp says this, Your sense of identity, 
your meaning and purpose in life, the goals that you set for your life, what you long for your loved ones to have, how you use your energy, your time, and your money, your sense of right and wrong, your means of making decisions, how you use the gifts and the abilities that you have, and where you look for peace and rest must be connected to this statement. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The full earth, the whole earth is filled with his glory. Everything revolving around him. That's what it means to live the Christian life. Missionary David Brainerd, who ministered in uh, upper New York State to the Native Americans, and he died before the age of 30. And as he's reflecting in his journal about his ministry, he said this, I never got away from Jesus Christ and him crucified. And when my people were gripped by this great doctrine of Christ and him crucified, I had no need to give them instructions and morality. I found that instructions and morality followed their love for Christ and him crucified. He said again, I find my people begin to put on the garments of holiness and their common life begins to be sanctified even in the small matters when they are obsessed by the doctrine of Christ and him crucified. How do you grow as a Christian in holiness? Focusing on Christ and him crucified for you. That's how you do it. No one's like our holy God. I remember I was in Tennessee one time and I was sitting listening to the preaching of Stephen Lawson. He was preaching on Psalm 22 and where it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was showing how that's what Jesus had ultimately cried on the cross. And as I'm sitting there listening to that sermon, I remember feeling this unbelievable weight that felt like it was pushing me through the floor because of the sight of God's holiness at the cross. And I remember thinking in that sermon, there's no way I could face God's holiness without the cross. And there's sometimes that preaching does that, and that's good. See, John Piper says about preaching, he says, good preaching gives the impression that something very great is at stake. Because the Bible gives the impression that something very great is at stake. And in this text, something very great is at stake for you tonight. Because you can't face God's holiness on your own, but Jesus Christ did. And he invites the worst of the worst to come to him so that you can have holy, holy, holy righteousness. Amen? There's no one like our holy God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that this truth would not only search our hearts, till up our hearts, but heal our hearts. That we would not limit your holiness nor downplay our sin, but that we would praise you as the Holy One who came down to die for us. And Jesus, thank you that the grace and mercy and love and forgiveness that is in you is enough. Help us to trust it. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.